This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Roundup. COVID causing closures. Starting Friday, museums, theaters, and casinos will have to close. Gyms will have to stop group fitness classes, and companies should have their employees work remotely when possible. The ComEd scandal continues. Late yesterday, federal prosecutors leveled corruption charges against four former ComEd executives and lobbyists. And state Dems are putting the heat on Speaker Mike Madigan. If Speaker Madigan wants to continue in a position of enormous public trust with such a serious ethical cloud hanging over his head, then he has to, at the very least, be willing to stand in front of the press and the people and answer every last question to their satisfaction. Those are just some of the stories we'll be chewing on today in the Roundup. And when I say we, I mean we're joined this week by Paris Schutz of WTTW and A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business. Welcome to you both. Hey, Justin. Good to talk. Thank you for having me. All right, let's jump right in. As we heard, Illinois has moved back to what's called Tier 3 to try and combat the spread of COVID-19. A.D., talk about what we've been hearing from the governor. Uh, that things are very bad and dangerous, that they are particularly concerned about staffing at hospitals. Um, We are concerned about ICU capacity across the state. 70% of hospital beds are currently full. 70% of ICU beds are full. There are some regions where that that is much higher. Region 7 south of Chicago is at 85% ICU capacity. Region 3 and 4 downstate are at 77%. And there's a big concern about healthcare staff staying healthy and not burning out. And because this outbreak is happening all over the Midwest, it's not like we can borrow some uh, healthcare workers from mm-hmm. Wisconsin or uh, Indiana because everyone is dealing with this all at the same time. Not a good spot and not a good spot for the governor as he tries to balance Paris, this idea of keeping the economy open and shutting down because of COVID, which was a huge argument back in March and April. This time around, quieter uh, dissent, but still some dissent. But but th- there's not much left in the toolbox for the governor. No, and it's kind of interesting that he's not going all the way uh, to a stay-at-home order like he did in the spring. So, you know, you can go uh, get a haircut still. Just everyone has to wear a mask, and they have to operate at about 25% capacity. You can go to the store. You can eat outside if you want to brave the cold. Here's the scary thing about the um, the hospital and ICU capacity. There's usually, you know, what, a, a week or two or three lag time in terms of cases and then hospitalizations and then deaths. And we're coming off a string of, you know, days where we've seen 14,000, 15,000 cases a day. That's very scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of good news is the fact that the testing positivity rate has remained relatively flat and come down a little bit. So it was around 14%. It's down to 13.4% today. But then there's Thanksgiving coming up. 
and that could really bring that thing right back up if people get together in groups of 10 or 15 in an enclosed space in a home and spread this virus even further, which is why you hear such an intense public relations effort to not do what you normally do on Thanksgiving, you know, do it socially distant, do it over Zoom, don't celebrate it with people outside your household. Yeah, right. And AD, the number's out right now. I mean, 13,000 new cases, as Paris just mentioned, 15,000 earlier in the week, so it's not a record, but, but still 126 deaths. These are high numbers. I saw the photos this morning. NBC Chicago showed O'Hare Airport and the lines that were at the security gate and, and checking in, Please. that kind of stuff. It looks like any other holiday, and yeah. I don't know what to say about it because, you know, there have been, as, as Paris just mentioned, uh, public relation blitz to say don't travel, don't CDC saying don't travel, yet Americans are lining up to travel. It's kind of remarkable, and this is despite public health officials saying the stats over and over. Uh, Dr. Alice Norwoody, the Chicago Commissioner of Public Health, said their city estimates are that as many as 1 in 15 people has active infectious COVID right now. We passed 11,000 total deaths in Illinois earlier this week. But I've also seen memes of folks being like, COVID fear back in March was through the charts. And actual threat of COVID back then was very tiny. Now it's reversed, but people seem to be less afraid because we know more about mm -hmm. the virus and more keen on thinking, I have taken maybe the precautions that I need to, or I, I'm not as worried as I should be, despite public health officials saying, Please skip Thanksgiving. Please skip Thanksgiving. Mayor Lori Lightfoot said she's not going home to Ohio. Dr. Arwady is not going back to Michigan to be with her family. Governor Pritzker is going to stay in Chicago while his wife and daughter are in Florida. So there are public health officials trying to say, we are taking this seriously. We are missing stuff with our family, and you should too, for the sake of our healthcare workers, for the sake of our hospital capacity, and for the sake of people you don't even know that could be two or three steps removed from the bubble but impacted by you. We see this, and, and the only thing left in the toolbox is a stay-at-home order. That's where no one really wants to go because of its impact it has on the economy. But odds on that that's going to happen before Christmas? I mean, is that kind of where we're going? Well, they, you know, the state already has an impossible job trying to pass a budget right now that's, what, $5, 6000000000 billion out of whack. Now, another economic slowdown, another loss in a ton of revenue, it's just going to exacerbate the problems that already exist. I mean, I really feel for these cultural organizations that have, I don't know how they're getting by. I mean, they've, they've had to shut down. Restaurants are now shutting down for the winter as their last-ditch effort to stay in business. The Hopley, you know, and Anderson, mm -hmm. we've we got to shut down. We're not even going to pay our heating bill here. Or we're going to turn off our heat. we we, we got to cut down our costs to the bare minimum to stay in business, hoping that we can get back to life in spring or summer. And, you know, the other factor here is a vaccine. You know, maybe, maybe the lack of a stay-at-home order is, the governor and public officials crossing their fingers that this vaccine is going to be dis distributed widely in the next couple months. There's an infrastructure that has to be put into place, has to get approved by the FDA, has to go to health care workers first. So <laughs> I think everyone's kind of got their fingers crossed on that process. It's, it's amazing to me in, in, in a strange way, in an absurd way. It's almost like Chicago's becoming, I mean, the whole country, but Chicago's becoming a beach town. <laughs> where it's like uh, open in the summer, but in the wintertime, we winter. shut down. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy well, we to think about. We should also talk about how these economic choices are made so much more difficult because we don't have federal relief, and it's not on the horizon as we're speaking. Lawmakers in Congress have not met. Discussions are basically dead from what I've read this week, and part of this is because there's so much chaos from the Trump administration trying to fight the electoral results, and then there's also the, the runoff in Georgia for uh, potential balance of the Senate that we're still waiting on. So there's stuff in flux, 
but no one is doing anything in Washington to help cities and states weather the economic part of this. And even if there there weren't a stay-at-home order, there's still a lot of fear about fully going out and participating in the economy. So part of this is going to be figuring out how to make consumers feel safe enough to go out well, and people yeah. safe enough to go back to their offices. I was last week we had we were talking about the shutdowns and and we had a caller call in who was a, owned a store in in Andersonville and was like, you know, you can keep the doors open but you sent the message and, and there's nobody coming in here. That's part of the issue too is like you almost want to see a stay-at-home order so there could be some federal help or state help to some of these businesses because if you say the doors can stay open and no customers come, it's on them. It's the worst of both worlds here. I mean, we're not really doing a whole lot to mitigate uh, the health concerns, especially with Thanksgiving coming up, and we're doing absolutely nothing to mitigate the economic problems that are spiraling here for small business. And by the way, it's you know holiday retail season, and this is where small retailers make 80% of their revenue in, in, in this part of the season. This is where they break even the rest of the year. They make profit if they have a good uh, holiday season, and so uh, this is killer for them if yeah. they can't do the kind of business during the holidays that they're dependent on doing. That's Paris Schutz, host and correspondent for WTTW Chicago Tonight. Also with us today on the Roundup, A.D. Quigg, political reporter for Crane Chicago Business. Well, there was plenty of other news happening this week. Let's take a listen. Chicago Public Schools is planning on bringing preschool students and some special education students back for in-person learning after the winter break on January 11th. The district also announced today that all elementary school classes will be in buildings, at least part-time, starting February 1st. I want to thank the aldermen who voted to support the budget. And the changes that have been made to the budget over time really reflect that listening, that learning, and that partnership. This year stands out as one of the most dangerous for all children and teenagers and the deadliest in recent years for the city's youngest residents. I miss my son. It hurts very, very, very much. Sadly, the city is nearing that grim milestone of 700 homicides for the year. 23 people were shot on Monday alone. Have we ever heard of 23 people being shot on a random Monday? It's a story that's kind of gotten buried with all the COVID news and other issues facing the city. We'll try to touch on that in just a bit. But first, I want to talk about Mike Madigan and the idea right now, and this could change, but right now he does not have enough Democratic votes to be a reelected speaker. Paris, anyone who knows anything about Illinois politics knows to even hear that that, that idea is shocking. No one ever thought they'd live to see that day, Justin. Yeah, he does not have the votes right now to be reelected Speaker of the House by his colleagues. If you go by the statements that Democrats have put out in the last few days, and if they stick to those statements. But the other part of this is who does have the votes? So far, nobody. I mean, someone's going to have to cobble together all the non-Madigan votes to you know, be the consensus candidate to be the new Speaker of the House. So that's going to be really interesting to watch. That could be very dramatic in how that plays out, because Madigan still enjoys a lot of support among the African-American caucus, the Hispanic caucus, some elements of the progressive community, Chewy Garcia, the Chicago Teachers Union, trades unions have come out uh, with statements in support of him. But the thing is, the inescapable thing is, and we'll get into this more, this latest indictment, he is all over it. It's inescapable. Yeah. Public official A. Speaker Mike Madigan, or, quote, our friend, as uh, allegedly uh, Mike McClain, the lobbyist who was close to Mike Madigan, referred to him when he was going seeking all these favors. A.D.? 
Yeah, a lot of these details are things that we had been piecing together over the past few months. But what we got on Wednesday night was kind of the first robust detailing of exactly how this system worked. We had some transcripts of wiretapped calls uh, that Mike McLean placed to other folks at ComEd, including former CEO Ian Promajori, John Hooker, Jay Doherty, just, just Jay Doherty <laughs> from the City Club. And it was, you know, very blunt stuff about, hey, we're getting pushback on appointing Mike Madigan's guy to the board. Um, let's figure out how we can how we can muscle that through. Just kind of a, a stunning, robust look at how, um, as Governor Pritzker put it, this was a pay to play quid pro quo kind of situation. Now, Madigan has said, if I were being bribed, I didn't know about it. And there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with getting jobs for folks. And the defendants that were indicted on Wednesday said this is kind of an overzealous prosecution and the U.S. Attorney's Office is doing everything it can to put pressure on us to flip Mike Madigan and we're all innocent. It's uh, criminalizing politics, right? That seems to be the go ever since Blagojevich. That's what they've been saying. That was Blagojevich's whole mantra here, but it didn't work out so well. But, you know, I'll point you to page 38 of the indictment here. McLean places a call to public official A, allegedly, and advises public official A, Mike Madigan, that Promajori, the former CEO of ComEd, is experiencing pushback to the appointment of a certain favored person to the ComEd Board of Directors. So Mike Madigan, he's not charged with anything, and he's, he's famously circumspect. There's never a paper trail. He doesn't use email. If you talk to him on the phone, he'll say, hello, goodbye, yes, no, and that's about it. But apparently there's a wiretap call here to Mike Madigan. And so maybe... The feds have some kind of evidence, but clearly with these charges against four individuals here that echo the charges against ComEd in their deferred prosecution agreement, by the way, that's them saying, oh, yeah, this did happen. Mm -hmm. Um, They're putting the screws on these folks to flip on Mike Madigan, especially Mike McLean, who is held steadfast so far, saying there's no way that's going to happen. So it does seem like they're after Madigan. It does seem they want a star witness to provide the smoking gun testimony that all this was done at the behest of Speaker Madigan, that to get legislation for ComEd that put money into their pockets but took money out of all of ratepayers in Chicago's pockets, they had to play the game, hire people close to uh, Mike Madigan, people that worked in his 13th Ward precinct. A lot of times they hired him in jobs that they didn't do any work or didn't show up to work. They had third parties allegedly, you know, kind of, conceal the payment scheme, and then ComEd cooked some of their books to conceal some of the, the payment scheme here, yeah. allegedly, according <laughs> allegedly. to this indictment. But they still don't have anything that says, Mike Madigan told me to do it. And what I, what we all need to see is, um, which is what Madigan and allies have said from the beginning, is how did this relationship meaningfully change legislation to benefit ComEd? So if, if there is something in the negotiations and past energy bills that can show up, that's the other thing I'm curious about. All these seemingly only partially connected cases against uh, the Marty Sandovals of the world, the Louis Arroyos of the world. Is there some kind of connecting aspect of this where we can get a sense of what the speaker might have done differently in terms of legislation and the way it was drafted and formed to ultimately benefit ComEd? And BEZ did a, a few months ago its own tally of the cost of this bribery scheme, basically finding that it benefited ComEd to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. State-approved revenue ComEd collected went up by 30% in this period. Net operating income for ComEd went up 50%. What I am curious to see is what changed in the legislation 
to get that benefit. There's two pieces of legislation they're talking about in this indictment, one in 2011 and one in 2016. In 2016, the Clean Energy Jobs Act, the way this was sold to the public was, A, the ratepayers needed to bail out ComEd nuclear plants because they were failing, but they, you know, somehow we all need them around and we need to pay for them. And B, it was going to you know, provide clean energy and new investments in clean energy. But by the way, you know, our bills are going to go up. It's something that hits everybody, every single person that lives in the city of Chicago. And whether you're left or right on the spectrum, I think everyone is angered at an alleged scheme like this. But in terms of Madigan, he's a cat that has nine lives. And, and in Chicago, we've been down this road before. You know, the higher truck scandal, the feds were going after the Daly administration, mm-hmm. people like Robert Sorich, Al Sanchez. It was the same thing, trying to get them to flip, trying to give them something on the big man, Richard M. Daly, and they didn't do it. They went to jail. So yeah. with Mike McClain, they can pressure him and pressure him and pressure him. Will he fall on the sword for Mike Madigan? Yeah. Al Sanchez, nice pull. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. You, let's let's make a transition to Chicago and talk about the budget. Ad, you you've been watching City Council. Uh, do you are you confident that this budget's going to pass? I mean, I'm not confident in any of my takes in 2020, but <laughs> at this point, it is looking like the mayor will scrape by. She got uh, 26 votes in the budget committee on her spending plan this week. That's a s- very simple, the simplest of council majorities. But who knows what happens over the weekend, right? And her opposition is this interesting group. You have a lot of white politicians or politicians who represent mostly white wards who hate property taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have, in general, the folks who don't like anything the mayor is doing. And you also have progressives who say the budget doesn't go far enough to cut police spending, to boost affordable housing, uh, efforts for homelessness. But she's pulled support from all of these different factions in council, the Black Caucus, Latino Caucus, Progressive Caucus, to, I think, piece something together that looks close to 30 votes. But the property tax opposition is strong from that no group. We saw that in Finance Committee earlier this week. Even though this is a relatively modest hike, $97 million, maybe adding $50 to your property tax bill that you won't see until 2022, Aldermen are very freaked out, and they don't appreciate that the mayor's office hasn't taken them off on the, the revenue alternatives that they've proposed. So we'll see what the bargaining is like yeah, over the right. weekend, and if the mayor manages to flip some of these uh, folks that are especially concerned about the property tax. Paris, uh, all, uh, Mayor Lightfoot came on this program, says so she's not interested in horse trading. That's a thing of the past, that this is a new world order. So uh, does she have to go back on that to try and get some of these aldermen that might be on the fence to, to support her budget? Well, it appears like she already has. I mean, she allegedly told uh, a group of aldermen, don't bother coming to me for uh, things in your ward if you're going to go against me here. So it looks like she's doing everything that other mayors have done and doing it more blatantly. There's an infrastructure uh, plan that she's talking about where aldermen will have money uh, for road repairs, uh, bridge repairs. It's always surprising to me with Lightfoot. She cobbles together the coalitions to pass to pass her initiatives even though she's rubbed so many people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the 50-member city council, I'm like, well, where is your natural coalition right, here? Right. Um, and yet she does cobble together the votes. That's interesting. Also this week, you know, in the finance committee, you had Ed Burke speaking up saying, <laughs> I don't like this $94 million property tax. Like, why don't, you know, Joe Biden's going to take office in January 20th. You know, why don't we wait to see if he passes some relief for cities before we all, all of a sudden tack on this? property tax hike. And usually in the past, if Ed Burke said, I don't like this, then it wasn't going to fly. And yet 
it still passed the Finance Committee despite Ed Burke's uh, objections on that. And there's also proposals to um, basically zero out all of the, the empty positions that they haven't zeroed out and just waiting to see what happens. So I wouldn't be surprised if we got federal relief and we could ease up on some of this other stuff. Um, but she's already managed to address a lot of the major stuff that aldermen were worried about. They struck this deal with labor to use weed money to avert these layoffs. She boosted some funding for anti-violence spending. No one seems particularly concerned about this massive borrowing, <laughs> but she, right. she's cobbled she's cobbled together uh, enough. Like Paris has said, she's always been uh, working with this a shifting majority that has so far always fallen in her favor. Well, I have to say, like just as a, as a political junkie in this town, I, I'm excited to see what happens in the next week. Uh, it is the best game in town <laughs> to see this happen and to see how aldermen are jockeying and, and how, what the, uh, the mayor has to do. We haven't seen anything like this in a long time in this city. It's fun to watch the behind-the-scenes machinations under Emmanuel or Daly, but at the end of the day, there was no doubt they were going to have between 40 and 45 votes for their budget. And Lightfoot has said in the past, I don't really care how big the margin is. I just need to get to 26. And then there's in last year's budget, this year's budget, there's all these kind of vague terms like... Um, zero-based budgeting. Zero-based budgeting, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> what does that even mean? Are these budgets really in balance, and, or are they just, you know really exacerbating the problems down the road. Yeah. All right. I want to wrap with uh, the the one story this week that was surprising and, and maybe not surprising, but at least, uh, you know, flew in the face of you had you had uh, the governor talking about restrictions and, and clamping down for COVID-19. And then you had CPS and the mayor saying, you know what, we're bringing kids back in January and February. This is a big story. Uh, and, and that was the plan all along. And you understand there needs to be planning to do so. But the timing was a little suspect in, in the way that nobody's thinking about bringing their kids back to school as we're in the second surge of this wave. A.D.? Yes, and this is interesting because we are starting to see some private schools, at least, already say, let's call it off now. Let's go all remote until January. But the mayor and Commissioner Arwady, who's a uh, a pediatrician, have said schools, especially with young kids, have not been a major source of COVID transmission. It's relatively low risk, and we are very worried about outcomes for our special needs students and our youngest kids, some of whom, some of whom aren't engaging at all with remote yeah, learning. Right, so right. it's a big priority for us that they don't get left so far behind from this that they, it will be difficult for them to recover over many, many years. But yeah, the timing with things uh, with things going as they are makes me also wonder how many parents are going to want to send their kids to school. I get it, but a lot can change in two months' time. It just seems like a head-scratcher to make this announcement, almost pulling away from what was happening uh, with, with COVID uh, in other parts of the state. A lot could change in two months' time, including maybe a vaccine comes out and, you know, the, the health care workers will be the first to get it. But teachers will be among the first because I think everyone considers it a priority to, to get kids back into schools safely. And, and the, the rationale here is the students are just not being served, especially uh, the most low-income students, by, by this remote learning. So, you know, K and cluster students in January and then by February, K through uh, eighth grade. and by the way, there's also a political element here. You know, there's a group called Democrats for Education Reform that are pushing CPS CEO Janice Jackson as a possible candidate right. for right. Joe Biden's education secretary. There are other uh, more progressive groups pushing Randy Weingarten, the, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, the national, the big national teachers union, the, the American Federation of Teachers. Weingarten, you know, publicly slammed 
Jackson and Lightfoot's plan to have kids uh, go back into the schools. So, you know, that's an interesting political fight that's going to play out. But we're going to have to see what the Chicago Teachers Union does to challenge uh, this plan. So far, they've come out in in opposition to it. Will will they legally challenge it? Yeah, let's see what they do. All right. (laughs) Barry Schutz uh, from Chicago Tonight and A.D. Quigg from Crane Chicago Business. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for breaking down the week. And great talking to you. And that's WBEZ's Weekly News Roundup. Don't forget the best COVID-related Q&A in podcast land. Our weekly chat with Dr. Mia Taramina drops into your phone this weekend. If you're subscribed, so make sure you hit that subscribe button. And I'm going to ask you for one more favor. Please give us a rating and a super short review on your podcast app. It really helps other people find us. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. And we'll be right back here tomorrow with Dr. Taramina and on Monday. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.